Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. It's Friday the 22nd of September today and I'm going to note the time as well. It's three minutes past three in the afternoon. And the reason I'm doing that is because this podcast was planned about 15 minutes ago when I sent my friend Ian Hall, who is a professor of international relations at the Griffith Asia Institute, a text saying, do you want to do a podcast on the latest India-Canada spat? And he wrote back saying, sure, when? And I said, how about now? And he said, okay. And so here he is. Ian, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on finally. Thanks, Darren. And uh, thanks for the invitation. And yeah, well, I'll do my best, you know, with 15 minutes preparation. Exactly. And that applies to me as well, because I'm not sure how many of our listeners know this, but Alan and I scripted most of what we said. We we were very careful, meticulous people. We liked to know what we were going to say in advance, often, especially on issues related to China. It can be a bit of a minefield in this country. And so we always try to be careful. But, you know, it's a new era for the podcast. Sometimes that means I'm going to try new things, maybe be a little bit loose. So, Ian, I'm glad to have you here to experiment with this. Uh, Of course, the reason we're talking is because earlier this week, the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, got up in Parliament and said that there was credible evidence that the Indian government was involved in the shooting, I think we can say the murder, of a Sikh leader who was a naturalised Canadian citizen on Canadian soil three months ago in June, and his name was Hardeep Singh Nijar. And so we have an allegation from a Five Eyes member, a close friend of Australia uh, in Canada, that a foreign government has been involved in what you might say is a targeted killing, an assassination of a citizen of its own country. That is a very big deal. And so I wanted to bring Ian on, who is an India watcher, has done research on India, to really just work through this, acknowledging, of course, that we don't have all the information yet, um, that things are being produced every day. I listened this morning to the New York Times podcast, The Daily, which did an excellent overview um, of the issue, and I'd recommend all of our listeners go and check that out. But look, you know, we're here to react to things and we have understanding listeners who know that things change and they're working through this as we are. So Ian, can I get you to start off by sort of describing the politics of the Sikh movement and where India is coming from when it's approaching this issue? Yeah, so if we kind of go back, let's not go back to the very, very beginning, but let's go back to the late 70s and early 80s. At that point, there was a move uh, amongst some people in Punjab in the Sikh community to create an independent Sikh state, uh, Khalistan, out of bits of India. Um, They could have also chosen to have taken perhaps bits of uh, Pakistan as well. But at that time, the move was, was that. And this movement for greater autonomy, which then became a movement for greater independence, um, turned violent. So there was a guy called Janel Singh Bindranwale, who led uh, a group of militant uh, Sikhs in the early 1980s. And and there were a number of murders, assassinations, police officers, local officials, and so on and so forth. And this led to a confrontation, a very famous confrontation in 1984 in Amritsar in the Golden Temple between Bindranwale and his followers and the Indian Army. And the Indian Army stormed that 
that holy temple of the Sikh religion. Uh, and in the end, Bin Rivali and his followers were mostly killed. Um, and this then sparked off an insurgency and, of course, led to the assassination of Indira Gandhi by her Sikh bodyguards um, towards the end of 1984. She was Prime Minister of India at the time. Uh, and then after, straight after that, there were days of riots in Delhi which were targeted uh, at um, Sikhs, many of whom, a lot of Punjabi Sikhs moved to Delhi after partition. Um, so it's a big community there and uh, a lot of people suffered as a consequence. So thousands of people died uh, in, that, in those just in those riots. Tens of thousands died in the insurgency that followed that raged all the way up until the mid-1990s. So this was a really dark, really problematic, unpleasant period in India's history um, through which a lot of actually India's politicians, leading politicians and officials, lived and, and had personal experience of. Um, and that might be something that we can we can pick up sort of later on, if possible. And so the insurgency does come to an end. Does that mean that the issue is basically resolved within inside Indian domestic politics before we get to the international dimension? Yeah, so by the time we get to 19, 1993, 95, there are thereabouts, um, the insurgency has really died down. So we don't have any great enthusiasm for Sikh separatism within India itself. What ends up happening, though, is that you've got this Sikh diaspora. So some of that diaspora has moved outside India in the 19th century. You know, if we talk about the Sikh diaspora in Australia, some in that during the 80s, during the insurgency, uh, and some of that newer diaspora, if you like, moved to places like Canada, to the United States, and so on. And pretty soon after that, after them moving there, they start some movements, some organizations, some activism to kind of try and draw attention to what was going on during the insurgency and specifically to the abuses that were committed by the security forces against ordinary Sikhs in, in Punjab and elsewhere in India. So that's the beginnings of this kind of, this new wave of activism, which is the foundation then for a, a sort of smaller militant Khalistani movement, um, which arises mainly in the US, Canada, a little bit in the, and in the UK as well, um, but we see it dotted around the, in other parts of the world as well. And that militant movement, are they sort of organising activities, dare I say, to tax inside India? Or what's their, what means are they using to sort of prosecute their political objectives? So back in, back in the 1980s and early 1990s, we saw some, some terrorist attacks, some assassinations. There seems to have been some overseas involvement in some of those activities you know famously there's a an airliner that is destroyed that is blown up with a bomb um so there's a kind of and that was coming from canada wasn't it that was a, exactly a, that was coming yeah. from canada mm. so yes there's there's been this close connection and of course you know just because as is always the case with these diaspora communities there's a lot of traffic backwards and forwards between between Canada and Punjab, there's a lot of money that flows in both directions, um, a lot of remittances that go into India. You can see that, you know, it's not, not that hard for some people to divert a little bit of that money into, you know, criminal activities or indeed into political activities, uh, militant activities as well. Um, so it's a murky area. Um, but yeah, there's, there is some evidence that there's been some, some militancy that's been sponsored from outside India. And if we go beyond the militancy to sort of more ordinary political action, 
you know, I've seen it come across my radar looking at the news about the sort of the independence movement for Khalistan. There were these referenda held in a couple of countries, I think even in Australia, which were obviously non-binding, but were kind of a representation of a political desire of this group of people for the, um, you know, for, for independence. Can you talk a bit about what that, you know, the non-militant aspect of this movement has been in recent years? Yeah, so you've got an organization uh, which was founded originally in the United States, but is now pretty active internationally called Six for Justice. And that organization, uh, the Indians consider to be militant, uh, but I think it's fair to say that it's it's got a kind of a bigger political following and a, a smaller kind of militant core as well. And Seeks for Justice really campaigned for, um, for again, for justice to deal with some of those human rights abuses that I talked about earlier on that happened in 1984, that happened during the insurgency that followed and so on. So that Seeks for Justice was founded, oh, what, like uh, towards the end of the 2000s. We saw this little bit of an upsurge of, of activism at that point, but we can't see that it's particularly militant at that point. The Indian government, though, starts to become concerned about this pretty early on. The Indian government is generally fairly sensitive to kind of internationally overseas based organizations that are campaigning for some kind of change within India. And because of the you know the sensitivity, the history of, of the Khalistan insurgency and everything else, the Indian government right from the start starts to take a concern with this. And then we see also some little, some smaller groups kind of coming along. But the current wave, if you like, of activism really just dates back three years, three or four years. It's really back to 2019-20. Around that point, we start to see there's some farmers protests in Punjab and there's some accusations that the Khalistanis have been involved in making these farmers militant. Uh, and those protests were pretty significant. There was a march on Delhi. Uh, they got Narendra Modi to change some of the, the policies that they were going to put in place in terms of farm reforms. So th these things are kind of vaguely connected. So we saw some uh, broader Punjabi activism. And then, of course, that was seized upon and used and, uh, and to some degree, I suppose, manipulated by some of the more militant elements outside of Canada in the Khalistani movement. And the Indian government around that time, you know, 2020, 2021, really starts to focus much more on this particular um this movement and considers it to be a threat and i guess it might not be surprising that they might be bundling together um mills and activities um with what we would consider in a place like australia or canada you know ordinary free speech you know the the expression of political views uh, you know i obviously don't know anything about the, this deceased individual but from what i've read you know he was an activist he you know he was involved in the referendum um you know he was clearly leading a political movement i haven't seen any evidence yet that he was involved in what i would consider to be militant activities or, or terrorist activities but the indians might not make such sharp distinctions given the sensitivities of the of history is that kind of a fair kind of characterization of where they might be coming from yeah, I think so. I mean, look, the Indian government's not very impressed with the referendum movement. So th and this is something that we've we've seen only really in the last six to nine months or so. So Six for Justice with some allied groups sort of banded together. And one of the ways that they thought they would kind of popularize or sell the message of the Khalistan movement was by organizing these, these you know, unofficial referenda all over the world. So, they, you know, there was a referendum here in Brisbane. There was one in Melbourne. The one in Sydney didn't go ahead for, you know, for various different reasons. 
Uh, and they happened in, in the UK, they've happened in Canada and elsewhere. Now, I think those movements, you know, they are, you can see why the Indian government wouldn't be impressed with them. You know, they don't like separatist activity generally. But that's, but, you know, as all the governments of Canada, Australia, the US and so on have said, you know, they, these are people exercising their freedom of speech, exercising their freedom of association, all of those sorts of things. Where this has all crossed the line, though, and become a bit more problematic, is that along with the publicizing of the referenda, we also saw posters going up, you know, calling Indian diplomats murderers or killers, this kind of thing. And that's obviously since the, the you know, the killing of Nijar in, in, in June, that's just intensified as well. And I don't know how much you know about the bilateral relationship between Canada and India. Before we get to the June of this year, but my understanding from reading some commentary online is that the Indians have long been, you know, displeased with Canada in particular. The the the, the airplane um, bombing. Um, it's obviously I think the, the the New York Times podcast this morning said it's the largest Sikh community outside of of India. So you can imagine just by sheer weight of numbers that that, that that this issue would be a prominent one. So there has been some long-standing tension between the two countries on this issue, I imagine. Yes, there has. So the tension between the two countries runs way back into the 2000s. It runs, you know, the, the, the present phase of tension, if you like. Um, and then it goes back into the 1980s, into the first movement of that diaspora into Canada. But from the late, late 2000s onwards, the Indian government is going to the Canadians and saying, look, you've got this group of people. We're not happy about their, these, their activities. We consider this to be interference in our internal affairs. And we consider that you have a responsibility to do something about this. Um, and so, you know, when previous Canadian prime ministers, previous to Justin Trudeau, have gone to, to Delhi, they've been um, harangued about this issue. Um, and so this is not a new complaint on the part of the Indians. The problem that you've got, though, in the relationship um, is that there's just not that much else in that relationship. So their trade is pretty paltry. You know, we're talking about 10, 15 billion or so Australian dollars a year. It's not very much. The remittances are important coming back from the Sikh community. Um, so and and the, they don't play cricket. They don't. Yeah, the Canadians don't play cricket. <laughs> not really, anyway. exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the other aspect is that the Canadians, of course, have not really played a big part in any of the big shifts that we've seen in this part of the world in the last ten years or so. So the Canadians are not really that interested in the Indo-Pacific concept. They they've kind of lagged on the on the whole question about China and how to manage that that particular challenge. So they haven't seen any reason to build a stronger political relationship with India either. So you've got this very thin relationship that is very much dominated by this separatist activist question. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to think of the the, the major pillar of the relationship being a source of, of, of discord and, and tension rather than something positive. You know, you can the list is long in the Australian context of things that you could say anchor our relationship with India, and they're all positive things. Not not to say there aren't disagreements, but that's that's a good contrast. All right, let's let's then turn to to these events. And and look, neither of us is is Canadian, and I'm certainly not an expert in Canadian politics. But I want to sort of talk through how I sort of I channeled Canada when I was following the story this week. So the Prime Minister has gotten up and made this allegation uh, of this sort of targeted assassination. Canada is, of course, a member of the Five Eyes. Um, and so I have to admit, when a member of the Five Eyes 
political leader gets up, um, I mean, maybe Donald Trump, I wouldn't necessarily trust it, but but like someone like you know Trudeau, I've got no reason um, to think anything other than there is credible intelligence here. Um, they fully understand the consequences. Um, they understand the equities involved. They understand that many other Five Eyes partners have got um, strong equities in, in getting along with India and building ties with India. They can see. And yes, of course, we'll get to Canadian domestic politics in a minute. But like, nevertheless, they, um, they're not going to stand up, I assume. Uh, the Prime Minister is not going to stand up and say and make these huge allegations without something to go upon, without some de- them evidence there. And I assume also that, and given the reporting that Canadian intelligence officials had visited India twice, I think, this had come up at the G20 meeting, I assume that our five, the Five Eyes entirely have been in, involved in this process um, and, and, and had visibility from quite a while ago that, that this was coming. Um, and so... The Canadians are going to have to show us some evidence at some point. They're going to have to show their receipts. Um, but it's you know, it's caused this row. But do you understand um, Trudeau's action and the Canadians' action as anything other than what I just described? Um, or do you think, you know, and this is where we can bring into domestic politics, but obviously the Sikh um, community is quite powerful in Canada. The junior coalition partner um, of Trudeau's party uh, is, you know, the, the NDP or the leader of that party is, is Sikh. You know, there was reporting that this might have been leaked, and so Trudeau was trying to preempt again. You know, it's hard to know what was happening. But Channel Canada, for a minute, can you? Um, uh, and do, how much are you in sort of agreement with the way I've kind of set things out? Yeah, I think you've set it out pretty pretty reasonably, and you've I think you've also captured the logic of Trudeau going public in as far as we know, given the the facts that we've got kind of in front of us. I think look pretty early on after Nijar's killing. There was a hint that there had been some, you know, that, that there was some suspicion that there was Indian involvement. So it, he'd been warned. It's reported he was warned that he was in danger when he was alive. So presumably they were they were keeping tabs on forces, whether domestic or indoor foreign, that were uh, posing a threat to his safety. Yeah, that's right. So his lawyer, and we also sort of recognise that his lawyer is a very prominent figure in Sikhs for Justice. Um, so his lawyer has said. You know, look, he was visited by somebody from CSIS, from the Canadian Secret Intelligence people, um, that they had said to him, look, your life's in danger, you need to make sure that you're going to provide security, all of this kind of thing. So these, these, this was leaked pretty early on in the days that were following the, the killing itself. I think from the beginning, there was, this, there was a suspicion in Ottawa, at least, that there was, that there was something amiss with this. And we also sort of just take a step back here and recognize that some elements of this of this movement some of the Khalistani uh, extremists and are also intertwined with some of the Punjabi gangs um, who are you know and so there's a lot of gang warfare control of drugs trade and all weapons and all this kind of stuff and that that's a transnational question it's not just in India and so on so we're, we're talking about people who you know are on the you know, he's not just a plumber. He's not even just an activist. There is, there's also possible connections to other things. But at the same time, early on, we get this, you know, hint that that there's a that the Canadians suspect that there's something amiss. We should also say as well that around that time, there, he, you know, Nijar was not the only Sikh activist to to sort of end up with an untimely end, if you like. So there's a couple of other cases around the same time. So in May, there's a guy called Paramjit Singh Panjwar who is shot dead in 
mysterious circumstances in Lahore, in Pakistan, where he'd been staying. Um, and then, just a couple of days before Nijar is killed, one of the organisers of a big protest which blew up into a major diplomatic incident in London in March, one of the organisers of that protest um, died in hospital in his mid-30s, just, as I say, three days before um, Nijar died. So you've got a series of cases, or at least, you know, three, four, three cases, where, you know, again, it looks like there's, there's something peculiar going on here, and it's aroused some concern, I, I, you know, as far as I understand it, from the Canadians, but also from the, from the Brits, who've been looking at this case in, uh, of this guy uh, who's died in the UK as well. And I should say as well, like last month, there was a, a, a Lashkari Toiba operative um, who was found shot dead in a mosque in Pakistani administered Kashmir. So we've got a lot of cases. Yeah, and this is, I think, you know, where I sort of start to channel my my roots as a uh, studying international law. I mean, the, you're not allowed to go around killing people, um, especially sort of leaders, but really the norm against assassination is broader than that and has roots going back all the way to the Peace of Westphalia, you know, 400 odd years ago. It sort of got formalized in international humanitarian law about you know, over 100 years ago. You've got a sort of, when you think about who is doing the assassinating um, these days, you think immediately of Jamal Khashoggi being uh, beheaded um, in the Saudi consulate. You think of the, um, the Russians um, poisoning um, some a former uh, agent, I think, and his daughter in, in, in the UK. Um, and, of course, you also think of targeted killings conducted by the United States, you know, against, you know, terrorists, um, that, or what we would consider terrorists, are in foreign territory. I mean, there were, I remember a U.S. citizen was actually um, assassinated in Yemen in 2011, uh, if I remember correctly. And I can't help but channel my West Wing watching Roots. You know, there was a double episode on this when they were, I think they were killing a head of state, um, you know, and and, and, um, and it was called, the episode was, was We Killed Yamamoto, right, this, this Japanese general in World War II that they also assassinated, albeit in wartime. So it was a bit different. Um, but, you know, the, the argument that assassination is or targeted killings is legitimate stems from the idea of self-defense right that this person poses an imminent threat um and and that that requires you to bypass sort of ordinary legal processes you know what we would want if you know if we wanted someone we would you know we would put together an a legal case um, we would present an extradition request to the country that had them, and we would make that case in court, or they, you know, it would it would get made in court, um, and that that's the ordinary process of justice. And I'm sure this is what the Americans would argue. I'm not familiar with these debates anymore, but in this case, you've got a person who's in Yemen um, who is planning attacks or has orchestrated attacks against the U.S. Um, soldiers or the mainland. Um, we cannot go through ordinary legal processes in order to. Um, to bring him uh, to justice, and so we are forced as a last resort to act in self-defence. That's how I would want to frame these arguments. Um, the Indians, of course, have just flat out denied. They believe they called it absurd um, that this is an allegation. But can you sort of talk us through how the Indian government is responding to this allegation um, and to what extent they're channeling any of these arguments or, you know, and, in, and maybe not just the government, but also sort of discourse broadly in, in India, you know, are they focusing on the US as being hypocrites? Are they, are they, are they saying, focusing on how bad he is? Like, let's, how are they reacting? 
Yeah, so I think that it's fair to say that we've got, you know, all of those arguments and more operating at multiple different levels with multiple different different actors. So, so yes, uh, at an official level, the Indian government has said uh, flatly, we reject this allegation, uh, we did not have anything to do with this, um, and we, you know, we're very upset at, at, what's, at what's followed, you know, the fact that we've seen their um, intelligence chief in Ottawa, you know, expelled from the embassy, um, and, and so on, all of this. Then you've got, you know, you even have opposition politicians out there, people like Shashi Tharoor, who are very well known, you know, uh, and, and very eloquent, very cosmopolitan politicians, making similar kinds of arguments to the one that you've just outlined, saying these are active threats and imminent threats to, uh, to India's national security, uh, and if it was the case that we had you know, gone and, and taken this guy out, then we had a right to do it. And we've seen that, you know, similar kinds of arguments circulating on social media. We've seen similar, similar arguments made in op-eds and so on. Underlying all of this is a real sense of grievance that Canada has not acted um, as India thinks that it should have done to shut down some of these, these movements. And, and, you know, the Indian government has also said we have handed over, you know, actionable intelligence to the Canadian authorities, and when we've done that, we've had no response. They're still they're denying it, but on the other hand, they're also saying, well, you know, if we did do it, then it was legitimate to do this. I don't know. I'm not an official, I'm not a politician, but as a commentator on these kinds of things, to say, you know, we didn't do it, but if we did do it, it was the right thing to do, this doesn't, isn't the most convincing argument out there, and it's not the convincing denial, um, but nevertheless, that's where we've kind of landed. If I was to imagine the ideal response, the one that I would want to make, albeit unconstrained by politics, uh, domestic and international, but if I'm a, you know, as a country that has been accused of involvement, I would say we deny these allegations, but we you know, trust the legal processes and we'll do what we can to support um, the investigation um, and we are confident that, it will, that we will be found to be not involved at all. That to me is a mature response um, and the kind of response that could imagine um, a Western country maybe, you know, more, being more likely to, to make. And then I think about how the Chinese might respond. And I've said on the podcast before that I think as a rising power, they're often, they're obviously hypersensitive. And I, I would use the word almost immature, right? They've got very thin skin. They're not willing. They can't accept every, every grievance has to be responded to, right? And I got those same vibes, um, when I sort of observed the Indian response, it wasn't just, well, you, you, we don't, we deny this and, and we're happy for you to do your thing. It was, you know, really punching back, right? And, and punching back by accusing Canada of harboring, harboring ten terrorists. We've seen, um, I think visas have been suspended. So there's a little bit of almost coercive-like behaviour um, in terms of imposing some costs. Um, of course, you've got the expulsion of diplomats um, sort of as an, in a tit-for-tat. But it kind of, I got those same vibes that, that India still doesn't have the confidence yet um, um, to, to either be out and proud and say, look, we, we did what we had to do um, and, um, and, and we're not going, you know, they want to sort of have it both ways um, or to just, you know, to say, right, we deny this and we'll let you do your thing. Yeah, how, how do you hear that? Look, there's a really, there's an excellent book that um, Mandri Jatati Miller published a few years ago that looked at kind of post-imperial ideologies and, and post-colonial ideologies. And, you know, her argument was that if we look at, she, she compared Chinese and Indian uh, foreign policy. And, and her argument was, you know, 
that both in the way that these foreign policies are sold and to some extent in the way that they're, they're contrived, there is a deep well of kind of, of, of post-colonial grievance that is being drawn upon in the framing of these things. And so it doesn't take very much for that to come to the fore and to become very obvious. Um, and so a lot of the responses I, I could have scripted for you before this incident, these responses of, you know, how dare you tell us what to do? Um, you have not, you know, you have not taken us seriously. You have not given us the kind of respect that we deserved when we've come to you and we've said that there, we have legitimate, you know, concerns. You've just dismissed those in a rather condescending kind of way. Um, and now you're accusing us of, of doing these things and accusing us of, of doing things that we shouldn't be doing, of breaking the rules. And anyway, you know, you guys have been breaking the rules for, for years. So there's a lot of that there. And there always is whenever there is anyone, any of these kinds of incidents. And Canada, in a way, is an easy target because of the thinness of the relationship that we were talking about before. And because of the prominent role that some Sikh politicians play in Canadian politics, but not just Sikh politicians. Um, we're talking about Sikh politicians who occasionally voice some, some sympathy for, you know, for Sikhs for Justice, for the Khalistan movement, uh, you know, and so on. There's an element here of kicking it a rather weak, the weaker Western partner as well. Uh, to make a broader point, um, I think that's, there's a bit of that going on. Well, let's then turn to Australia and perhaps also other Five Eyes partners and what we are supposed to do. You know, I my imagine, you know, we would like it to be the case that India doesn't think that it can go and kill, uh, especially citizens, but really anyone um, um, around the world as a way of solving its political problems. Um, of course, uh, India is an important partner, a geopolitical part, a growing uh, geopolitical partner and, and, and important for a whole host of reasons as well. You know, I have seen only so far very, you know, very kind of measured responses. You know, I think Penny Wong said Australia was concerned and the Americans have said something similar. How do you see this um, I mean, from the point of view of, of, of those of us who are looking on um, and trying to work out how to respond ourselves? Well, this one is difficult. So, you know, we value rightly both of those relationships, the relationship with Canada, the relationship with India as well. They're very different kinds of relationships that come from very different kinds of places. Um, I think the other thing, and I think that's reflected in the comments that we've seen from the Americans and the comments that we've seen from Canberra as well. The other thing is that this is not over yet. Um, you know, the Canadians have not presented any evidence yet. Uh, all we've seen so far is, is, is Trudeau's statements but also, and some leaks to the media saying that they might have some signals intelligence or some wiretaps or something along those lines that they, 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 can, they could present. But, you know, um, you're, you know, you're more knowledgeable about the law than I am, but, you know, those kinds of things are not, they're not very admissible in court. Um, and, you know, they have limited admissibility in the court of public opinion as well, if we're going to be honest about that. So... I think there's a me there's merit here to holding fire, and 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 sitting and saying, okay, we need to know what has occurred here. At the same time, though, you know, if it comes to it, and if there is incontrovertible evidence that's presented that, that Nijar or in any of these other cases had some Indian involvement, that then means that I think we're we're going to have to confront that. Uh, in a measured way, in a clear way, and we're going to have to go to, to Delhi and say, look, 
we do not condone this particular kind of behavior. So, you know, we, we do, we want you to be able to defend your own interests. We want you to be able to, um, you know, secure yourself. All of those things are important to us and just as they're important to you. But this is manifestly not the way to go about this. And then the other issue that we've got, and maybe we can talk about that uh, as well, is, is we have a sizable diaspora here. You know, it's approaching a million people. Many of those come from Punjab. Many of them are Sikh. And many and some people in that community have been involved in some of the referendum movements and, and so on. So they have a kind of, you know, they're very concerned about what's happening here. And we have a responsibility to, you know, to reassure that community uh, and to try and manage some of the fallout of all of this. And, and I think to do some other things as well, which, you know, we could maybe if we have time, we can get onto. But there's a lot that needs to happen here in domestic and in foreign policy. And this sort of gets back to the, the real complexity here. You know, even if. They, there is very strong intelligence. It might not be um, admissible in a court of law. You might not want to reveal it um, publicly. And yet you might be certain that this has happened um, and you want to deter it from happening in future because it's really just not good to allow this norm to, to, to be trampled upon. Um, uh, there's a reason why it's, I mean, the, the Russians and the Saudis, I mean, look, the Israelis have, have got a reputation for doing this as well. So um, it's not just a, a, a couple of countries. And then you've got your own domestic politics, right? I mean, we have it here. The Canadians obviously have it. It's fraught. I mean, my instinct, as I said, I think at the top, is to trust you know, the Prime Minister of Canada when he says this. Um, and if it turns out to be true and somehow we are able to be, um, you know, persuaded that the evidence backs this up, then I think at least at the margins, and that will stain India's reputation into the future. Um, maybe not to the extent that we immediately think of beheadings when we think of the Saudi Arabians, but, you know, just, it, and it's not to mean that our shared interests with India are not going away, um, but I think somehow we need to communicate to Delhi, if this has in fact happened, that this has a cost to it. You might not see it in a direct response, um, but uh, over the longer term, it is not in your interests um, to, to do this. And I, I don't know how, that, that's, the, that's the challenge. There's so many, and even to get to that point, there are so many different evidentiary, legal and public relations hurdles you've got to come across. And look, it may, in, in a week's time, Trudeau might walk it all back and this conversation uh, is moot. But it, it also, I have to say, you know, there are, there's a vigorous um, debate in this country and elsewhere about the, um, the merits of, of, of really going all in um, with Prime Minister Modi, in particular, um, you know, concerns around uh, part of the liberal democracy in, in India um, um, and some concerns about Hindu nationalism. And th this issue sort of seems to scratch those exact itches, right, almost as a reminder or as proof that um, cooperation with India over the medium to long term is going to have its landmines um, and create contradictions um, that we are going to have to, to somehow work our way through in order to advance our national interests and our, and our shared interests. And yeah, I mean, I, all of this is sort of flooding over me over the course of this week. Um, and I, I, don't know, I don't know what to do. I, I'm sure those working on this, these issues have had a, had a, had a rough week. Uh, but yeah, any, any reaction to, to those observations? Yeah, so I mean, let me just sort of start by saying, I mean, I'm on the record. I'm known for being somebody who's kind of supportive of a stronger strategic relationship with India. I'm also, though, you know, on the record, hopefully, I was kind of acknowledged as, as you know, saying that 
we've got to you've got to recognize you know what what india is though you've got to recognize that india is a is an insecure state it is a state with limited capacity to deal with this very with the multitude of um, security problems that that it has within its own borders it's got a terrible record of insurgency internal security problems uh, it, it's faced it's got two nuclear armed neighbors on its borders you know and the way that it's handled insurgencies the way that it's handled challenges to you know to the political unity of india in the past have never met the highest standards but on the other hand you can't just w cooperate in the world with people who share your values you know it just isn't a share or completely 100% share your values right i don't think we i think we would struggle to find anyone i'm not even sure that the new zealanders would argue that they share our values um, quite often they don't, and so you know we we find ourselves in a really tricky situation. So anyway, so that's a really kind of long and a sort of self-justificatory, indulgent <laughs> way of, of coming around to the point. I, th I I'm a bit reluctant to talk about costs because costs mean sanctions, and and once you start getting down that line, you know you really can do a lot of damage for very little gain. When you know we need open dialogue um, with Delhi, and but we and that open dialogue allows us to say. Behind closed doors, we're not happy with this. You know, we're we're just not comfortable with this. And it also allows us to say, though, India, you know, this is not in your interests. You, India hosts groups of people from other countries within its own borders. It does not want to see a situation develop in which you know other countries are encouraged to come in to Dharamsala and to assassinate members of the Tibetan community there. It does not want to encourage a situation where anti-Taliban figures who are you know, now in India are targeted by the Taliban, or that Pakistan's ISI decides to come in and target Baloch separatists in, in India. It is not, again, just not in India's national interest to break this norm or to erode this norm any more than it's already been eroded. And for me, I think that's probably the strongest message that can be conveyed at this particular point. Um, but I completely agree. Look, this is this was never going to be a, an easy relationship to manage. And and anyone who thought that you know that cricket and curry was going to get us through has not been watching the cricket, right? And all the disputes that happened there and, and so on. Well, Ian, I think that's an excellent place to wrap up this podcast. Uh, so thank you for joining me on this emergency episode of Australia in the World. It was a real pleasure and I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Darren. Um, thanks for asking me to do this. And, um, and you know, I've really enjoyed having this discussion, even though it is a very difficult topic to talk about. That's all for this emergency episode of Australia in the World. We thank Walter Konagi for editing today and, of course, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. Thanks, and we'll talk to you again soon.